Psychology in Seattle. So, Bob, I have a number of emails here that people have been sending in for us to answer. So let's do it. What do you say? Let's answer emails. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am uh, Bob. I'm a therapist in practice here in Seattle, and we've been friends for a long time. Yeah. And I think I say that every time, though. Yeah. I don't know why that's important to me, but, you know. You could say, and I've been, we've been friends for a longer time since the last time you were on the podcast. That is true. About yeah. two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this podcast is just for patrons of oh. the podcast. Interesting. This episode is just for patrons. So if you want to get access to this episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. I know how much you love Bob, so I'm only going to give you to the patrons, uh, Bob. And uh, we're going to be talking about DBT. We're going to be talking about the scholarship. We're going to be talking about uh, when therapists review th- uh, or when clients review therapists online, like on Yelp and that Ooh, kind of thing. Yeah. We're going to be talking about ha- uh, attachments. We're going to be talking about uh, divorce and the impact it has on kids. Wow. Uh, more on DBT and uh, relationship to therapist questions, tips for students. This is ambitious. Yeah. Well, we'll see if we get to all of them. So if you want to hear this full episode, you have to go to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. When you, when you become a patron, you get uh, instructions on how to access this episode and hundreds of other episodes that are only available to patrons. So do so now. I'm a patron. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone, people. This first email is from Vanessa. They write, It would be great if you could get Bob's opinions on how to make DBT more engaging for teenagers. I work in an adolescent inpatient unit, and we have DBT groups every week. They seem to have labeled it as the boring group. (laughs) (laughs) And so they are sometimes not very vocal. Any tips would be much appreciated. Bob, what do you think? Have fun. How? Uh, I don't know. Like, um, um, I have fun with my students. I try to think up interesting ways to talk about skills. I try to involve them. It's not a lecture so much as we have a discussion and we do practice together, but I try to make the practice interesting. Like, for instance, we did this one on values this week, uh, actually two weeks ago. And instead of just talking about values in a cognitive way and, you know, what are your values, which doesn't engage the brain at all. I have these 80-some cards that I lay out on the table. Each one has a value, like courtesy or uh, wealth is a value some people hold, or leisure or creativity or um, sexuality or whatever, you know, like 80 different kinds of values. I didn't make them up. I just got them somewhere and um, laid them out on the table, and everybody has a stack of poker chips, and we do a silent auction where it's like if you, you try to win your values, the ones that matter to you, and if you win, then you get to have that value. But if you lose, it's like, you know, that desert island thing. If you're on a desert island, you can only have three CDs. Well, CDs, that's me, right, my age. Three CDs, who would they be? You know, then so we just treat the values like that, like your desert island values, where like if you don't win creativity, then you have to live the rest of your life without creativity. And people take it very seriously. And they bid and they overbid and they outbid and they like change their bids and they pull chips from here so they win that one and da 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 And they take it really seriously. I've had people at the end of that class say, can I keep my cards as if the cards are, are their values. It's like, no, your values are inside. 
But then we debrief it afterwards. We like, which ones did you win? Which ones did you want to win that you didn't win? And then we talk about, you know, are these important to you? Are these, these are important to you? Are they a priority right now? And are they showing up in your life? Because values is a very general thing. You know, creativity is very general, general, but how does creativity show up? Well, I, I went woodworking in my, you know, garage or, or I painted a picture or I made some music or whatever, you know, um, um, those are the ways that values show up is in the activities of my life. And people that have a life where they live their values in a regular, not maybe not daily, but a regular way tend to be um, less emotionally vulnerable. Now I can teach values in a very cognitive way and it's like, you know, fine, you know, but I don't think it gets people where they really live, which is like, if I have to win creativity and I'm not going to get it, then I'll, I'm going to spend my chips on creativity or love or whatever it is, right? My students engage and they really enjoy it. So my thought is this person could be creative about how they teach skills because you can teach that in a really bookish way, but I don't. Did you come up with that intervention? I modified it from something somebody else did. But it's not in the DBT manual. It is not. No, no, that manual is great. You teach the skills, but how you teach them is up to you, right? So have fun with it. Do exercises in judgment like... Anybody got any juicy ones this week? Instead of, you know, non-judgmental stance is a really good thing to do. And here's why, blah, 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 blah. Boring. Yeah. And teenagers don't give a shit about that, but they might love talking about their judgments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Well, do you have any advice? I mean, that's a concrete way in yes. which they could do that. Right. Without going into a full five-hour lecture of all the different things you do. Right. Oh, right. How does one, because I wonder if Vanessa doesn't have someone like you around right. or other colleagues from whom you could pull ideas from, like the one you, what is Vanessa supposed to do? I stand in my shower in the mornings before class and I think about what I'm going to teach that day and I just sort of muse on how would I want to teach it. And over 20 years, you know, I have a repertoire, but literally it's, I just wake up. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I think about what I'm going to teach and I just sort of muse on how to teach it and what would be interesting, what would be fun. And I just developed a repertoire that way. I think Vanessa can probably do a version of that or some version of that that works for her to make it interesting. If she could make it interesting for herself, probably help. Yeah, I can totally relate to all that as a you know professor. You, you teach that way. You've done that to teach. Yeah. Yeah. Same kind of thing where mm-hmm. I'll be in the shower or I'll be driving or I'll be just about to fall asleep mm-hmm. and then I'll be sort of daydreaming about the next day's mm-hmm. uh, lecture or activity and something will pop into my head and I'll be like, ooh, you know, and then I uh, flesh it out. A lot of it ha- has to do with, and I'm guessing this is true for you too, Bob, is the reps, you know. Yes, absolutely. Um, You get the idea, you try it, it fails. You get another idea, you try it, it works halfway. You modify it, it works even better the Mm -hmm. next time. Mm -hmm. You really nail it on the fifth time, it becomes part of your routine. Mm -hmm. Uh, You try new things. Uh, It it just takes a long time, you know. You've been teaching the DBT class for... 20 years. 20 years. Yeah. I don't know, I didn't know it was that long. Yeah. Holy crap. 1999 is the first time I... Wow. Yeah. I don't think I knew that. Oh, well, yeah. I don't think I knew that back then. Did I know that back then? I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember you being at the Maple Leaf place. Yeah. And that was 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. But not 20. 
But yeah, so I've been teaching 20 plus years right. as well. And same, uh, you got to get creative, Vanessa. Yeah. You got to make it your own. You got to make it interesting to you. Yeah. And um, even so, even if you were like, oh, Bob just told me a way to make it interesting. It, unless it's really yours, yeah. you're not going to sell it in a way that makes it interesting to other people. No. So you got you got to take risks, you know, and you got to own it. So you've taught the same courses for years and years, right? Yeah. My guess is, um, you know, at the beginning, I remember when you would prepare beforehand, and after a while, a, a, f- a person becomes conversant in their thing, and then once conversant, you become fluent, which is like how to just respond spontaneously. Mm-hmm. And and you know, I have the benefit of that. You have the benefit of that. I don't know how long Vanessa's been teaching. She may not have the benefit of that kind of familiarity with the material. When I first started teaching DBT, I was overwhelmed. I spent a lot of time prepping before classes and have been accused of being bookish, mostly because I was bookish. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it takes practice. Yeah. It takes practice. And and, and it, when you're, I don't know, I didn't have fun back then. Mm. But I think after a while when you become fluent or conversant, then then you can you can kind of it's like learn to play guitar you play scales and then after a while if you play enough scales if you do that enough time you can begin improvising mm-hmm. and then develop improvisational language right which you know i think most things well language is improvisation anyways um vanessa may not be i don't know where she is maybe maybe that's like it's new stuff for her i right. found it a very challenging thing to learn it and teach it at the same time yeah yeah so next email, but before we get to that, I just want to announce our scholarship. I, 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 I keep forgetting if we've really announced it to everyone. It's the third one. Our second scholarship Got it. for $2,500 was given to Hannah Bronson, who submitted an application. A lot of people submitted applications, but the team selected her as the awardee. She is a music therapist yeah. who gra- graduated uh, six years ago-ish who has been working. So you know what the typical... Have I talked to you about the winner yet? So no. you know the typical graduate student from a master's degree. You uh, work, you pay off your loans, you're doing wonderful work, you're doing this, the world a wonderful uh, favor, and and you're meeting the needs of, of people who need you. Uh, you're doing a lot of great things. So all master's level clinicians are making the world a better place. But we have to differentiate for the award winners for the scholarship those people who are doing extra things. And Hannah Bronson is one of those people who is doing extra things. And it's pretty rare, especially right after graduation. What right? does she do? Well, she uh, is a music therapist so she and a, and a regular therapist, so she does a lot of therapy and music therapy. Right. But she spearheaded these programs in the military to help people with PTSD and uh, head trauma to uh, integrate music therapy into the treatment. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she also did something in Africa, I believe. And you have to read the full description for for all the details, but suffice to say that she, after graduation, did a lot of extra work that she wasn't paid for Mm -hmm. and published articles peer in peer reviewed journals about wow. about using music therapy and demonstrating its effectiveness 
in uh, peer-reviewed journals. Also, pushing against all these barriers in the government because a lot of people in the government were pushing back sure. on it. Yeah. Because music therapy, art therapy, they, drama therapy aren't very respected. They don't get it. Yeah. And so she had to demonstrate a scientific effectiveness. She had to, oh, wow. uh, you know, lobby politicians and decision makers and lie awake at night wondering if this is ever going to happen. And it did. And. Wow. Uh, and so now she is going back to school to get her doctorate so mm. that she can further her uh, studies in these areas and others and also uh, to bolster her clout as someone who can yeah. uh, throw her weight around a little bit in terms of advocating for these sorts of programs that are much needed in the military but also for uh, service members when they – uh, discharge when they're former service members, but also just people in general. Um, and so it's really great to uh, award her with that. Wow. And she doesn't, she's, she's single. She doesn't have a rich spouse. She isn't, she doesn't have rich parents. You know, she's paying all this on her own. Yeah. She's going back. She's moving across the country to her doctorate program. It, it's just, there's a big need for money. <laughs> yeah. Right. That way. So, Bravo. Congratulations, Hannah. Wow. Fabulous. Yeah. Patronana wrote, writes in, Bob, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the merits of online reviews of therapists. Mm. There are no Yelp or TripAdvisor for therapists specifically. Psychology Today has seemed to be the most legit and central database, but they don't allow reviewing. This can make it nearly impossible to find a therapist without a referral. I also imagine that stigma makes it less likely someone would ask for recommendations on social media or even to friends. Okay. Bob, so what do you think? Oh, I I um I have a couple of thoughts. The first thought though is I don't like reviews. Like I think that um the internet creates permission for um people to be critical and judgy of one another because there's anonymity and anonymity and you know what I mean. And um, so I think that those reviews tend to skew negative. I might be wrong about this because you know me. I'm not a big internet guy. Um, I think they tend to skew negative, And so I'm leery about them being accurate reflections of what someone might reasonably expect. And I'm big time in favor of if you want to hire a therapist, kick the tires on several. Call them. Talk to them. Find out about what their experience is with the thing that you want, how long they've been doing it, how much of their practice is devoted to it. Pay attention to how it feels when you talk to them. I don't think a review, it's only going to, it might help, but it's not how I would shop for a therapist. And I never have shopped for a therapist that way. So um, it would not be my first choice, though, you know me, I'm 50, so I, I I don't, I'm not a big internet guy. Yeah, I am almost 50 and I'm a big internet guy. And a big Yelper, yeah. For example, yeah. TripAdvisor is the Yelp of the rest of the world, from what I understand. Like, like people want to go to a hotel. It's TripAdvisor. Is that it, or something uh, else? Yes, but TripAdvisor has also become the place where people review restaurants. Oh, and everything. Oh, okay. You know how Yelp is, right? Yeah. They, re- you know, you can review anything. Like I, when I was a big Yelper back in the day, someone Yelped my sushi. You know, like you can create, like they just, it's just, it was a restaurant called Kirk's Sushi because Yelp doesn't really make sure it's a real restaurant or not. 
Oh, you mean you made them sushi and they loved it and they reviewed you? And they made a restaurant called Kirk Sushi <laughs> and, you know, did all these reviews <laughs> and uh, posted pictures. And, and so for a while there was, there was this uh, restaurant on Yelp called Kirk Sushi. But anyway, Funny. Um, the, uh, so Yelp and TripAdvisor are places where you review anything. You could review lawyers and a park or mm-hmm. uh, those guys. But anyway, um, so uh, I do use Yelp a lot, and you're totally right that the anonymity will create a skewing towards the negative, but it also allows for negative reviews to be made public. Mm-hmm. So there's a way of looking at Yelp and TripAdvisor, because both Yelp and Trip, TripAdvisor are organizations like McDonald's are trying to make money. Yeah, They don't, they don't really care about... Uh, providing a um, accurate picture. Right. So, for example, with Yelp, if so, Stacy has you know she has a, a spa, and right. and one of the things that you have to reckon with if you own a business, especially a business that is like a spa where it's it very much is driven by online reviews. Right. You have to reckon with the fact that Yelp will come to you and say, "Look, your account is free. You know your listing on Yelp is free, but." If you pay for the pro service, which is you know hundreds of dollars a month or something, then you'll be able to essentially manipulate the reviews to make it look like you have better reviews than you do. Oh. And if you don't have a pro account, then we can't we can't guarantee you that negative reviews aren't going to be listed at the top. So Yelp, it's like it's like the mob. They say it's you like know paying protection, right? It's like uh, wouldn't it be sad if uh, a rock went through your window and no one was there to protect you? Hey, you know, and uh, that's my uh, uh, Tony Montagna event. No, uh, uh, what was Michael Corleone? No, he didn't talk like that. Uh, anyway, Goodfellas. Yeah. So, uh, so it's literally like that. Mm-hmm. And Yelp, there's been many. Uh, many accounts of people talking, and I have firsthand accounts from business owners who have actually experienced this. But anyway. Does anybody review Yelp? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there is. Uh, but I've been using Yelp as a guide for restaurants and ho- hotels and, and different kinds of things for a long time yeah. because you have to learn how to read it. Mm-hmm. Most of the Yelp reviews are legit, honest people who are giving their opinions about something. Right. So you have to read it in a way that uh, understands the landscape, right? Like if you read a one-star review, you have to under, you have to look at like, well, how many one-star reviews are there? Because right. any any time, like our my, this podcast has one-star reviews. Oh yeah. So uh, it, and to me, it's like I can't imagine hating the podcast that much. I can imagine being like, meh, not for me. I could be. I could imagine being like boring or yeah uh not my cup of tea right but like i fucking hate you people you know what i mean like uh, <laughs> you'd have to listen a while to like really uh, develop that kind of hatred uh you'd be surprised oh okay so so uh you have to take the gestalt of it and there's a certain way that people will write that i sort of key in on that i believe anyway tends to be more credible than other things you know mm-hmm. Plus, like if there's a review on Amazon of a particular product and they're like, mine broke, you know, mine was defective. And then you think, well, 
0.1% of products are going to be defective. So yeah. you just so you roll the dice every time you buy something. Right. But if but if say I see 10% of the reviews saying something like that, yeah. then it's like, "Oh, I don't want to roll the dice on that level." Yeah, you know? Right. So there's just that kind of anyway. So I think that if it'd be interesting because there isn't this as Anna is saying, if half or 10% of our clients went online and reviewed us, mm. gave one to 10 sentences about us, about not only if they liked us, but also like what our style was, the what they got out of it or something. I bet you that would really help people. Hmm. Um, again, as a consumer, you would have to understand how to read such a thing because I suspect that a lot of the reviews would be like, he's great, and she's great, she listens well. Like, real, I imagine a lot of the reviews would be pretty similar, mm -hmm. you know. But, but and it's, and it's same on Yelp. Uh, you know, you, you'll see, like, that pizza joint or something, they'd be like, oh, this is, this is the wonderful pizza. And you're just kind of like, okay, I, I'm not getting a – that's good. It's interesting that it wasn't terrible, but I'm not getting a sense for, like – well, what kind of pizza sure. or how does it differentiate from other places? Right. And, and I'm actually a terrible Yelper in this way. Uh -huh. I write one-sentence reviews. Right. Mainly because I I personally use Yelp as a, as a food log for myself. I don't really care about anyone else. See, I'm only doing uh -huh. it for me. Right. So that I can look back and say, like, did I like that restaurant? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and actually all my Yelp friends would yell at me. They're a classic Kirk review, like five words. And anyway, so, cause like people will write like pages about, wow. they'll go to McDonald's and they'll just write pages. And it's just like, man, you know, uh -huh. anyway. Um, so I think it could work. It, it could also be horrifically horrible mm. as, as I think you're pointing out. Um, but what I will say is that I've had a couple supervisees now who have actually because people do review mm -hmm. their therapists on Yelp and TripAdvisor. It does happen. Oh, it like happens. I have a couple of reviews on Yelp, and from years ago, and at least I, last I checked a couple years ago. But I had a supervisee recently who, um, or no, a while ago. This is a few years ago. She was very good on the internet. She was very savvy on the internet. She um, knew how to use the internet. She, you know, was building her practice. She was very good at, you know, business building, networking to different media outlets. And her practice was skyrocketing. And then, and I forget the story exactly, but this is at least my memory, is she got one horrific review online mm. and because so few people actually review people online this one review was like the only review oh mm. another place you can review people is on google like google business mm -hmm. right you know when you google map something or you google there's a google business listing which is kind of like yelp and anyway so she got this really horrific kind of uh off kilter unhinged negative review of her mm. from a client who was in my estimation either being completely unreasonable mm -hmm. and or not mentally well mm -hmm. and she from her account said that her business completely dried up after that oh wow how awful 
And so she essentially had to change careers. She's still a therapist, mm-hmm. but she has to be she's, – she had to move. She like There were all these things she had to do. Yeah. And I got just the tagline on it because I heard about it much later. Um, and another, recently another supervisee, one of my current supervisees, also got a really horrible review. Um, it hasn't hurt her career the way it did the other person. But it is a problem, I think, in the way that of the people who are reviewing, yeah. it's pretty much only the people that either really hate you just mm-hmm. because it wasn't a good match or, mm-hmm. or maybe you screwed up a little bit. Who knows? But it can't be that bad. You know, you give it your best shot. I mean, unless uh, – well – uh, or and the people who and the ninety nine percent of people who love you they don't bother to make a review. The other thing I'll say here that I haven't it just occurred to me, which it might be occurring to people out there, is that I get emails from people every day talking about how a therapist has wronged them. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it could be misinterpretation, misunderstanding of what therapy is, whatever. But a lot of these accounts are pretty credible mm-hmm. when you, when they lay out the details there's there's no way you could unless the person is completely delusional there's no way you can really uh, mistake like my client kissed me on the knee do you know what i mean like uh, uh, you know my client or no sorry my therapist kissed me on the knee my therapist um said he was in love with me and asked me out on a date like mm, you can't really misinterpret that so the um other part of this is like how many therapists out there are serially harming their clients without any recourse because the next client has no idea about those prior cases because where would they find that out? Right, right. And if you had a place, because as Anna points out, the stigma prevents, like people on Yelp review everything. Sure. They review Earned, you know, uh, Lowe's and Home Depot. They review uh, any any business, a haircutting place, a plumber. They, they review everything, mm-hmm. but they don't review therapists. I mean, do they review doctors? They review doctors. They review dentists. Yeah. I, I've I've done a Yelp review on my dentist. How'd it go? I love my dentist, yeah. Alex Jarrett of Shoreline, Washington. Um, and. Uh, you know when you get to be the same age of your dentist, you know you're old. <laughs> Actually, here's one for you. My dentist's daughter is now a dentist, and she treated me last time I went in. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Because, you know, dentists were always old. Uh-huh. They were always just ancient. Well, Ancient. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, I think I'm like a, maybe even a year older than my dentist. Wow. Um, so, anyway, uh... So, yeah, people review their dentists, but not their therapists. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just feels like, at the, very, at the very least, it'd be nice if we could reduce stigma enough so that people could compulsively review their therapists in the same way that they compulsively review everything. Mm-hmm. But also, I think it would actually be a good thing. Because mm. when you go, like when I look at a dentist, for example, let's just because I think it's pretty analogous to going to a therapist, okay. you'll read the reviews and you'll be like, oh, okay. Huh, you know, nine out of ten, pretty positive, you know, four to five stars. Uh, no, I don't read any concerns. You know, one out of ten person is like, I didn't like this hygienist or they screwed up my appointment or 
my billing got a little weird or, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, well, I don't know. That's probably not going to happen to me. And they didn't say anything about the dentist being an, an asshole. So, okay, I'll, I'll try that person out. You know, there's, there's a way of shopping, a way of finding out. And with therapists, it, and as Anna says, it's like the only way you can find out about, you, you know, you can sort of pre-screen someone because, you know, you, and I say this too to people, try out a few therapists and see. Yeah. But would it be nice if you kind of narrow it down a little bit? Because, like, you're just given a list of literally, if you live in Seattle. Oh, yeah. Essentially, and, and you're not using your insurance, you're essentially looking at a pool of, like, 500 people. Oh, that that few? I mean, I thought it would be more than that. Well, yeah, but within a few blocks Got of your it. house. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if you could narrow that down a little bit prior sure. to having to, quote, unquote, shop around? Because sure. yeah. you can't possibly see 15 therapists. It'd be nice if you could narrow it down yeah, a little bit, yeah. right, if there were online reviews. Yeah. I don't know. I guess another way would be is if all therapists posted videos of themselves being a therapist. Like maybe that would help. What it probably you, would. You, know? you mean like real sessions, excerpts from real sessions, just on them, kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe masking somehow the client, yeah, voice or content or something. Or there's a fake client who works with you to elicit your typical therapy style yeah. or something. I don't know. Or if clients give permission, like I have a a colleague, my old couple therapy supervisor, and she has a release of information for use of client sessions for commercial purposes. So like if she wants to publish a training on how to do couple counseling and she, she might ask a couple for this kind of permission and if they're willing to give it, then she can use their material, but she'll mask their um, identities and leave out as much identifying material as she can so that, you know, people's privacy is um, reasonably protected. But she uses their faces. Uh, she has... She does not use their faces, I don't think. Though some of them do. I've seen published couple counseling yeah. sessions where people are, you know. I've been thinking about doing that, honestly. People have been, been asking for that. Maybe you could do that too, Bob, with, do, with me. Do what? Uh, record actual therapy sessions and post them as episodes. Oh. Uh, I'd have to think about that pretty carefully. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because um, when people come, their reason for coming is paramount to me. And so I I want to be careful about um, adding an extra element that um, is parallel to their reason for coming. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Like yeah. just even hearing about your friend, I'm like, that, yeah, that just seems like, oh, yeah. to me, I would never... I would never even ask. In fact, one could claim it's unethical to even ask your clients yeah. to sign such a thing because yeah. they are beholden to you. Yeah, that's a high demand. Yeah, and they might feel obligated. Right. And what if they change their mind? And if I was in therapy, I wouldn't want my stuff to be presented in yeah. a training. As transparent as I am or try to be, I do want privacy. Yeah. Yeah. And when I'm in, that's a one place yeah. that's like, no. Uh, so I absolutely agree. But what I was thinking was, was designing some, and I, th there's precedent of this. Uh -huh. You get people to, they're not actual clients mm -hmm. when they start, but they act like clients. Yeah. So the thing that I was thinking was you put out a call for improv actors. Oh, right. And you pay them. Yeah. And you say, I need you to improv a real human being. Right. I don't, I, I, you can't be just faking 
something because it'll right. it'll be it'll it'll feel fake. Right. So, however you get there, if you make up a character, if you play yourself, right. but play a version of yourself, right. it, it has to be real. But you're not an actual client, and we're going to sign this contract right. saying this is for film purposes. Right. It is not treatment, right. and I might even actually recommend or mandate that the person have a therapist out with outside of me, yeah. a, a real therapist. Right. Right. And then I would film it. And then yeah. it would be a demonstration for uh, therapy because one, people are asking for it. Two, uh, the, there aren't very many good representations of real therapy out there. I think no. there's there's a fair amount of videos of therapy, but I find most of them to be boring, <laughs> <laughs> not well produced, mm. or obviously faked by actors right um so you know at the some of the trainings i've been to what they do is they ask for volunteers like for this this i'm thinking of this couple counseling training they ask for volunteer couples or they ask therapists anyways and so these folks come knowing that they aren't this is just a one-time thing and that it is for um uh, it could be for publication, but it is for the benefit of the people in the training. And so they'll do a session in another room, and it's all video, like live video. And um, trainees get to watch somebody who's an expert right. provide an hour's worth of therapy, and um, uh, but with a couple who know that that's what they're signing on for and are right. willing. Prior to. Prior to. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you get around the high demand. Yeah from a therapist where the client feels pressured and also it's not recorded. Right. So I would, I would be willing to do something like that where yeah. I was just like, well, if only a dozen people are going to see this right. live yeah. and then Good there's enough. no permanent record of this kind of thing. Right. Yeah. There's plus ways it's, to, plus it's the first session. So maybe I'm not going to get it into anything super right. personal anyway. Right. Um, so the last thing I'll say about reviews is that if you work with a tough population, then all your reviews could be skewing towards the negative. Good point. <clears throat> you know, like if you work with a lot of borderline people, for example, your um, the chance of you having clients who are going to have occasional bad days with you and, and really feel unsafe with you or something. Or if you work with people who are teenagers, <laughs> uh, young people who are forced into therapy, for example. That's probably a better example than borderline people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are going to uh, potentially, you're, you could have like a two-star rating. Yeah, um, It's sort of the same thing when I see McDonald's, for example, or Dairy Queen, and they have an average of two-star ratings. So on Yelp, you have five stars. And a typical good restaurant will be like 42 Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, 4.5 is uh, if you have like 100 reviews, you have four. That's like uh, killing it, huh? You're killing it. Yeah. Even a four-star review is pretty good. You get down to a two-star average, you there's something desperately wrong with what's, with your business. But if it's a McDonald's, you know it's the same McDonald's as everyone. Now, not all McDonald's are the same, some, some, but I just, I'm always just like, come on, Yelpers. Yeah. Like and that and sometimes I'll review McDonald's uh-huh. and I'll give it you know three or four stars right. and I'll be like it's and my review will say it's a McDonald's it's a McDonald's 
We're that, on the McDonald's scale. Yeah. Yeah. These are like, McDonald's stars. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it, for those of you who re- reviewed it a one or two stars, you came in with the wrong expectations. Right, right, you know? right. Um, it's sort of like, I, I want to see Hobbs and Shaw, the new uh, Fast and Furious movie. Oh, uh-huh. Um, but I'm not going expecting Martin Scorsese. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? I'm expecting something that is absolutely silly. Yeah. Entertaining but forgettable. Yeah, uh, and if I if I if I expect a five star you know Oscar winning movie, I'm going to be disappointed. And who goes into McDonald's going like I expect to be wined and dined like a yeah. fine? Okay, the last thing I'll say is that uh, we can't ask our clients for reviews. Actually, it's specifically no. laid out in our ethical codes yeah. that you cannot ethically ask your clients to review you. Yeah. So it's we're in a catch 22 because we there's stigma which right. which results in people not reviewing. Right. And typically the way people get people to reduce stigma and also to review is when the business says could you please. Yeah. You know, sometimes you'll be at the dealership and they'll say so you could really help me out if you could go on and review it just Uh helps you know i get a bonus blah Uh blah blah. and you know that probably produces a little bit more traffic i ask people to review us on itunes and i'll do that right now if you haven't reviewed us on itunes please do please do so because when you review us on itunes it um, bumps us up in terms of the search engine uh seo situation Um, and it's also just interesting for us to read people's reviews even if you hate us um so uh and one of the funnest episodes we ever did me and umberto's we read all of our one-star reviews (laughs) on on itunes (laughs) Uh, it was pretty funny uh so so yeah but i will say in seattle i looked on yelp some therapists have 13 reviews wow on yelp Uh so so that for some people, I'd, yeah, and maybe they are asking mm-hmm. their clients to review them. I don't know. You know, there's that thing, Thumbtack. Do you know Thumbtack? Yeah. Yeah, they they do, like, they pub, they will publish reviews if they're there to be had. Huh. Like, clients can review therapists on Thumbtack. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I have a supervisee who used that. I, th- I think I told you about it. Yeah, you did. I used it. Yeah. You didn't like it? Uh, it was fine. It just didn't generate much, so I didn't, you know. Yeah, so if you're not familiar, I've never used it, but I have a supervisee who uses it to get clients. Uh, From my understanding, a potential client can post something on Thumbtack. It's like, you know, you're thumbtacking a note. Right. And you're like, I'm looking for a therapist to help me with my anxiety. And then as a therapist, you can... uh, you can bid. You can essentially right. say, like, okay, I'm I'm a therapist. Yeah. Here's a little bit about me. And, yeah. you, and then another therapist will say, okay, I'm also a therapist, right. and I can help you with this. Yeah. And then if that person chooses you, then you pay a little fee, yeah. I think. It's like 10 bucks or something. Yeah, this little bit of money mm-hmm. as the therapist because you got this work, this yeah. contract or something. But they have thumbtacks for, like, plumbing mm-hmm. and for design or mowing your lawn or it's just a way to be like connecting people who want something from, you know, services. And, uh, so if you're a therapist or, or a client, it might be someplace to kind of look. Yeah. All right. Next email is from patron serenity, whom we met at a live show and who 
joined us on the 11th anniversary show. Uh, can preoccupied people learn to act avoidant over time? Can preoccupied people, preoccupied attachment style people, learn to act avoidant over time? And if so, do they actually become avoidant or are they just pretending? Bob, what do you think? Huh. So like act avoidant or do they become avoidant? Is that... I think she's saying act, not become. Oh. And then her another question is, is, are they pretending or are they actually? Now, here's something I don't quite get, though. I did hear, I don't remember who I heard say it. Somebody that I respect, but I can't remember who it was, said that your attachment style isn't necessarily fixed in that um, um, in one relationship you might behave a certain set of ways and in another relationship that doesn't show up and you find yourself behaving in other ways. And I, I I don't quite understand that because I just think about myself and I think, well, I think I probably act this way in all my relationships, though maybe to varying degrees. But I don't know. I, I, what do I want to say about the differences between my partners over time? I, maybe I'm choosing similar kinds of people or something. Anyways, um, my first thought is, yeah, you yeah. could. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I agree with everything you're saying, Bob, is that – I. As I get to know attachment theory more and actually start applying it to real human beings, I now, when I talk about attachment theory, I mainly, when people ask me these sorts of questions, I, I, first I answer with, well, let's start kind of from the beginning in that we tend to look at attachment theory as like having four categories. You have secure, preoccupied, disorganized, and avoidant. Right. And that tends to be the way people talk about it. I think a better, more conceptually sound way to think about it is there's a spectrum from secure to insecure. Mm -hmm. So you have secure people who have the healthy range of insecurity and healthy range of trust of other people, healthy range of self-esteem, healthy range of... um, being able to tend to other people's feelings, mentalization, you know, empathy. And, you know, they get upset sometimes and they get lonely sometimes and they get hurt sometimes and they get overreactive sometimes. But it's when it's within a normal range uh, and they recover more easily and they can sustain relationships more easily. Um, then you have people at the insecure range who have difficulty with that because they were raised in a way that made them believe that people can't really be trusted or that they can't really be trusted themselves. And this leads to complications. And what it does is it creates a, com- uh, uh, it compels the human to develop a coping style. Now, disorganized folks, when they're in their disorganized place, have no coping style. That's what defines them as disorganized. They just, it's, they're just, you know, deer in headlights pretty much perpetually so there's no coping other than just a reaction um, because of how difficult it was for them growing up there are other ways to cope though so you have if you're going from secure to disorganized there's other ways to cope and you can cope and the common ways that we categorize are preoccupied and avoidant with a preoccupied person coping with loneliness and distrust and and the insecurity by leaning into people and really paying attention and uh, amping up their attachment behaviors, making other people know how they feel, making sure other people know when they feel hurt, uh, 
almost depending on other people to help them feel um, stable. To the avoidant person, they cope with it by just giving up on the whole thing and believing themselves, tricking themselves into thinking they don't need anybody when they absolutely do need other people. And so those are just two styles, though. And you aren't, you aren't your coping style. You just have a, a tendency to cope. Now, you are your security level. You know, that is something you are. Like, you can't uh, – the uh, – but having even said that, depending on the situation, you know, if you're in a situation where – like, for you, Bob, if, I'm, if you don't mind. No, I don't mind. When you're at work – you feel pretty secure in your job. Oh, yeah, yeah. You feel confident. You have self-esteem. You, If you have a client who gives you a disapproving eye, it doesn't challenge you uh, very much, or it challenges you within normal limits, let's put it that way. Yeah, it's different at work. It doesn't, doesn't mean it's easy. No, but, yeah. but it, it doesn't destroy you, and you don't scream at your clients, and you, you don't quit. Uh, you you have the normal range of of reactivity and normal range of of challenge with trust, but generally you trust yourself at work, you trust other people, you know things are going to work out okay, and without really knowing for sure, you know your cl- your clients basically like you, you know without them without you needing to check in with them. Uh-huh. You're not relying on those relationships to fill a hole inside. Yeah, yeah. and. They, you just trust, yeah. you know, these are, you just trust these human beings are good with some flaws. I'm good with some flaws. This will work out. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about it. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. I don't yeah. have to worry. I don't right. have to do anything yes. elaborate yes. to make sure that this works out. It'll work out. Yeah. I can just take one step at a time. Everything will be okay. Well, I mean, I think that's basically true. Yeah. And um, when that's not true, it just means I have something to manage. Yeah. Like my own countertransference, my own emotional reactions, because let's be clear that people are going to, um, my, I will, I will respond. I'll react to people. And sometimes I'll react in insecure ways. It isn't predominant. Yeah. Yeah. In general. Yeah. Y- you're, you're, we would characterize you if such a thing was around for your work, uh, ego. Yeah is definitely in the secure range. Yeah. Like that'd be fair to say. Yes. With your wife, different story. Oh, yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> uh, she looks at you funny or doesn't respond enthusiastically mm. about mm. something or you're heading into a conflictual yeah. uh, debate about a dresser, for example. Oh, right. And no or very little trust yes. of this is going to work out. Very little trust of my spouse believes in me yeah. or is thinking good thoughts about me. I mean, just in these isolated moments, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, very little trust in I'm going to figure out a way to get through this, right. regardless. Yeah. Um, and and in some ways, from the outside, you would look at it and go like, "Well, work has got to be much harder and much more challenging to your ego than talking about a dresser with your wife, right?" Yeah. But it's about context. It's about the level of yeah. need. It's about yeah. um, the associations one right. has. And so for uh, the context changes your yeah. attachment style and your attachment, even the, from secure to insecure. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. we would say. Yeah, you could say that. Right. So, uh, so that's something that is also flexible. But even if we're going to like, okay, well, generally speaking with my romantic relationships, I tend to be on the insecure side, say I'm, you know, from zero to 100 with 100 being the most secure, zero being the least secure. I'm like at the 35 percentile in my romantic relationships in general. Um, you know, maybe sometimes I'm 50, maybe sometimes I'm 20, but generally that's where I'm at. And I tend to cope with that insecurity in mm-hmm. a particular habitual way, Mm -hmm. either through avoidance or preoccupation or a combination of both. Like I tend to do this style and I find that it's all in the description. When you actually talk to people, Mm -hmm. they'll tell you the story. This is how I deal. When I'm challenged, when I feel like my, when I feel worried, my spouse doesn't love me. When I'm worried, my spouse is going to cheat on me. When I'm worried, my spouse is not thinking about me or when my spouse hurts my feelings. This is what I tend to do. I either give them the silent treatment for three weeks or I tend to yell at them Mm -hmm. or I tend to say I don't need people anymore or I tend to uh, cry Mm -hmm. in front of them or I tend to drink and go out with my buddies because I can depend on them or I tend to... um, have sex or demand sex as a way of sort of reaffirming our relationship. You know, there's ways that we cope. And some are more functional than others. Some of them come from a more insecure place, assumes more bad things than other kinds of things. And so, to Serenity's question, um, can preoccupy... So even the term preoccupied people implies, you know, okay, we're talking about a, a particular group of people who tend to be, um, shall we say, 80% of the time when they're dealing with the insecurity, they're dealing in a preoccupied, leaning-in sort of way, can they learn to act avoidant over time? Absolutely, right? Um, it's a, it's, they're equally effective ways to deal with insecurity. One can lean in or one can give up. Um, so certainly one can learn to act avoidant. In fact, a lot of preoccupied people will email me and they'll say things like, um, well, I think I'm a combination of both because... I'm deaf, you know, when you describe preoccupied, you're definitely describing me because when I text my spouse and they don't get back to me, I get upset. When my spouse comes home late from work, I'm, I notice every minute that they're late for work, that they're late coming home from work, and I'm terrified they're going to cheat on me. When my, when, when my spouse and I are having sort of distant bad times, I'm the one who initiates conversations to say, like, what's going on? We need to talk about this. Um, I'm the one who is, like, desperately trying to get my spouses to open up and, like, tell me more. And when they don't, and when they don't open up, it freaks me out. You know, that's a preoccupied kind of a place. Uh, and then they'll say, but sometimes, like, when things get real bad, like, I just give up on everybody. And, like, for two years, I didn't talk to anybody, you know, I, I, romantically. I just gave up. Well, that's not avoidant in the strict sense. You, you came to a breaking point as a preoccupied person, and you gave up. Yeah. But that's not a pattern of avoidance. Avoidant people, they won't even know they're avoiding anything. Yeah. Like if you ask a preoccupied person, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I've given up on people. I just can't. They're, you know, I can't trust people. I get betrayed too much. It's, it's bullshit. I'm avoiding it. That's a preoccupied thing to say. You ask avoidant people and they'll be like, I don't know. Well, what do you mean? 
well, you know, how, how do you feel? Do you feel close to people? Uh, sure. Like, there's just nothing there. Like, they, they, because they've learned not only to avoid, but even in their psyche, they've they've avoided the topic entirely. They don't they don't acknowledge the need in their head. So avoidant people aren't actively running away. Yeah. They don't begin the chase to start with. They don't <laughs> you know? recognize their actions or their feelings. Right. They don't even know they're, they're having a feeling. Yeah. They're having a feeling, but they don't know they're having a feeling. Right. The preoccupied people can act avoidant. Sure. Uh, but that's not, you know, that's not acting. That's being avoidant in the sense of a descriptive word, but it's not being the avoidant attachment style. That's a whole other gig. Yeah. Um, and then you ask Serenity, and if so, do they actually become avoidant or are they just pretending? And it's hard to know unless you had an example, Serenity, but um, certainly people, as we've been saying, you can f- be flexible given the situation. Um, and things can change over time, absolutely. And research shows this, yeah. that they've actually measured kids, for example, at the age of two who have an attachment style. And you measure them 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, and they'll have a different attachment style. In the same way that you can move to secure or away from secure. The last thing I'll say is that, and this is actually relevant to me, is that when, if you're sort of um, not very strong on the preoccupied or avoidant end of the spectrum, and you're with someone who is, um, so I'll, I'll, just, I'll just give an example for me. So I've estimated myself to be uh, at least one foot in the secure side, and my other foot is mostly um, avoidant, but with a little bit of preoccupied. So when I'm challenged with attachments, I tend to avoid. I'll do things like um, I don't need people, or I'll um, hang with my buddies, or I'll work a lot, or I'll... Um, be quiet, be stoic. And in my head, I'm thinking I'm doing a good thing for everyone, but in reality, all I'm doing is defensively protecting myself and kind of punishing people around me. Self-soothing, I should think, in a lot of that. Through difficulty, right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the best I can do, Mm -hmm. I guess I would say, in a situation. And when I was younger, if you would have asked me, about it, I'd be like, what? I, well, I, you know, I'm just a very independent person, I right. would say. Um, and people would often say that I was aloof or that I was um, an enigma. I remember hearing that a lot. Like, Kirk, you're just an enigma. I just, you're hard to figure out. And I was like, huh? Hmm. Uh, what do you mean? Why do people, why have I heard that like five times? What What am I doing that's making me, f- f- but it's an avoidant thing that people do because you just have a, a sort of unconscious pattern of not really being present exactly. You're not really authentic. You're not not really there. And so people, especially preoccupied people that I might have known, would have been like, it's anxiety-provoking because they're just like, I don't know really who you are. I I don't feel like I'm really getting to know, like, the real you, you know. Anyway, so most of the time, you know, if I'm challenged, um, you know, I'm either secure or avoidant. But if I'm with someone who's more avoidant than me, then I become preoccupied. So because the the way avoidant can work and the way preoccupation can work in a in a romantic relationship is the uh if you have two 
uh, if you have two people, one's preoccupied, one avoidant, then the preoccupied person will pursue, mm-hmm. and the avoidant person will distance, and the closeness will be maintained. The the as the as the avoidant person avoids, the preoccupied person will will chase. As the preoccupied person chases, the avoidant person will move away, but never too far. It's, yeah. it's just it's a, it's a safe distance yeah. for both people to some extent. Yeah. Um, if you have two avoidant people, then there's this tendency for the two avoidant people to just sort of slowly drift apart and never connect. Uh-huh. No one's pursuing. Uh-huh. And uh, someone has got to pursue. Yeah. So if I'm with someone who's more avoidant than me, then my insecure foot has to do something. Sure. And now I've got it. I guess I'm the pursuing one. You, you, there's a distance gauge inside. Right, of everybody. Yeah. And so and the distance gauge says, oh, wait a minute, too far apart. So if I want this relationship and I do, then something's got to change here. And what for you, if you find yourself more pursuing when that's the case. Right. Yeah, got it. Now, if I wanted to retain my avoidant uh, stature, I would try to out-avoid my partner, <laughs> and then that would push them to be more preoccupied. Mm-hmm. So, so it's also dependent on the person you're with as well. Let's be clear that these are not choices that you make in your conscious mind. Mm-hmm. This is just what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the conscious mind makes a quote-unquote choice, but it isn't that choice. It, 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 it's framed in a different choice. Yeah. Like, I just need to take a break. Right. Or I need to focus on me. Right. Or I need to learn how to deal with my emotions uh, independently. Right. I, you know, I can't tell you how many times, I, and I've talked about this before, but I can't tell you how many times I've heard clients say, like, they'll be going through something real tough. And a breakup, a divorce, a death, um, a fight or something. And for men in particular, the conclusion and something that they're told actually by society and maybe even friends or gurus is they have to learn how to deal with their emotions. You know, they have to learn how to regulate their emotions through independence. Mm-hmm. They have to meditate. They have to find their own activities. Yeah, right. They have to um, learn how to let go. They have to, all these kinds of things. And in the beginning of my career in life, I would have been like, yeah, of course. But now I'm always, as soon as my clients say, nope, not the answer, uh, bullshit, <laughs> you're just, you're, you're avoiding the need that I know is in you, which is contact with other human beings. Now, with that human being that hurt your feelings, maybe they're not the person that you, you maybe, you know, I'm not saying you have to go to that person who hurt your feelings and be close to them or confide with them, but you need human beings. I mean, that's why you're in therapy. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you could do things on your own, you wouldn't be in therapy. I mean, book. What? Just read a book. Yeah, read a book. Like, and that can help. Sure. But we, you have to acknowledge your need for other human beings. You have to acknowledge that you cannot get through this life alone. You have to acknowledge that when you're in pain and you know, when you're suffering, you cannot meditate that shit away. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that just drives me nuts. All these men, oh, mindfulness, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, great, mindfulness is great. Yeah, yeah, fabulous. But That's... unless you're meeting your needs relationally and socially, uh, you're not going to help yourself by focusing on mindfulness. Well, if it's real mindfulness, then there becomes the potential for the growing awareness of the need for the other, not 
the idea that I can sit alone on a mountaintop. That's not mindfulness. That's just fucking avoidance. Yeah. But, but it masquerades, as you're saying. Yeah. And a lot of the gurus of mindfulness yeah, sure. and meditation sure. will propose that notion. Yeah, yeah. Right. Of non-attachment. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? American culture has a lot of um, independence sort of uh, value. Yeah. Value, value independence. Don't dwell on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let it go. Right. I don't even know what let it go means. That one bugs the shit out of me. Yeah. Robin says, can you please talk about the impact of divorce on children, especially a messy divorce, and using the children as pawns? Bob, what do you think? It ain't good. <laughs> I actually, you know, I don't know much about families and family therapy, and I don't know anything about the impact of divorce. Um, but, you know, Robin, everybody knows it ain't good. Yeah. I mean, have you had any clients who had divorced parents? Yeah, and I've had clients who are divorcing and have kids. Yeah. You know, yeah. And did they use the kids as pawns? Yeah, people do that. I mean, I'm not saying everybody does that, but yes, that happens. You yeah. know, you're you're being hurt in the most core way, one of the most core ways that a human can be hurt, and you have um, anger, and um, it's messy, and... Um, intense and volatile and people probably fuck up yeah you know like they just do yeah they regress yeah yeah divorce is one of the worst things anyone can go through oh my god i don't know i can't imagine i mean it depends on the situation but i would say like 90 percent or more of divorces are worse on your soul and on the grief uh you know degree than say losing a parent Mm. Like we have these certain losses and griefs that we can talk about at a party mm-hmm. and have people go, oh, that must be really hard. Mm-hmm. You, my, you know, if you said my, my parents died in a car crash, uh, you know, 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, that must be so hard. Mm-hmm. You must be, you'd be like that. You must be still struggling with that. Well, hopefully someone would say that. But if you say 13 years ago, I went through a divorce, people would be like, huh. Yeah, right well, over it. Yeah, it must have been a long time. Yeah. Are, are you, are you are, dating? <laughs> yeah, are you are you telling me you're still thinking about that divorce? <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? You know, everyone goes through breakups. Yeah. Big deal. Um, hey, Kirk. One time I was in this war. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 One time I yeah I saw like five people's heads get blown off and oh, man. yeah it's like it divorces is, is rough for everyone including the kids. Um, and yeah, uh, people do use their children as pawns. I have seen perfectly mature, you know, nice, wonderful parents yeah, going sure. through a divorce using their kids as pawns. Yeah. Uh, specifically, they will give messages to the kids that they have a lot. So when you're going through divorce, it's almost universal. Not always, of course. But almost universal that at least some point, you as a, if not perpetually, will have extremely negative perspectives of your former spouse. Yeah. She's a conniving, cheating bitch who yeah. she's just in it for the money and she's selfish right. and she lied to me and he's an aggressive douchebag who. It's, doesn't really care about 
anybody and his parents like screwed him up and god bless the next person he decides to date like these are almost universal things that people say when yeah. they break up with someone yeah um let alone a divorce which can potentially be more complicating people rewrite history yeah, yeah. And, and and so when you're around your kids and around it, so when you're around your friends oh, yeah. you're going to start you're going to talk shit you wouldn't believe what he just, you know, mm. what his lawyer did. To, they just sent me that you wouldn't fucking believe this shit. And when you're talking to your parents, when you're talking to your siblings, and it's hard to not also at least talk about it in front of your kids. It's going to leak. It's going to leak. It, it, it doesn't have to leak, yeah. but it often does. Yeah. So baseline, there's that stuff. Um, then up from there, you have... Uh, parents who actually just go to their kids and say like you understand that your dad is a terrible person yeah i mean i i I get that you want to spend the weekend with your dad but you understand do you understand what he did to this family Uh, yeah yeah. do you you understand what he did um i mean even things that are somewhat reasonable like uh do you understand that your mother is a crack addict who sold all of our possessions including your toys and the state has designated her as a harm to you. Do you, you understand that, don't you? Like, even those kinds of things, it might seem to a parent like, well, the government has sanctioned this statement. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so, And the kid kind of knows this, so shouldn't I be able to say that? And the thing is, is it's complicated, but in general, you want to protect kids, depending on their developmental stage, from at least some, if not all, of that sort of stuff. It does not help to alienate your child from their other parent. Yeah. And I get the compulsion. Sure. There's so many practical reasons why a parent would do this. One is is that, say, say the mom is um, addicted. Say she, say she does have problems with substances. And the kid is like, how come you won't let me stay the night at her house? Mm-hmm. And in your mind, you're like, well, because she drives drunk. Yeah. She has... Uh, drug dealers and pimps sleeping at her apartment mm-hmm. who are going to harm you. And no, it's, yeah. she's, although if she were clean, maybe we could work something out, but no, she's, she's not safe. So there's a, there's a compulsion to just say like, well, let me explain to you why sure. she, you can't go over there because she is, and even if you sugarcoat that, it's, yeah. so there's, motivations from parents to say such things um like another example would be um well you know how angry your dad gets you know he loses his temper mm-hmm. you you don't like that when he does that right i mean sometimes he he smacks you around a little bit well you know that's why that's why i don't like your dad and that's why i don't want you going over there and i don't want you being like him so it can feel very Sound and almost sure. like developmentally helpful to do that to kids, but it's honest, it's genuine, it's it, truthful, it, and it, it's even sound on a level. But yeah. it, what it doesn't account for right. is the fact that for ninety nine percent of children, they depend on an attachment to their parents, yeah, even if the parents have issues, and. If they lose that attachment, even if you as the parent think it's a good idea for them to lose that attachment, that has 
often negative consequences right. for for them and really for everybody. So a lot of times as a family therapist and as a supervisor of family therapists, it's complicated, but a big part of these kinds of divorced families is how do we retain the goodwill between the child and your former spouse? Yeah. How do we facilitate that attachment? How do we mitigate any damage that the spouse might you know, commit to your children? And these are extreme cases. Um, but the main thing is, it's like you need to have, the kid needs to feel loved by both parents mm-hmm. and the kid needs to have an attachment. The kid needs to feel like um, my parent knows that I like them. And, and it's, you know, like I said, it's just pretty complicated. So definitely, you know, it happens. And, and I just talked with a mom who's going through a divorce recently and I, and she, and she has a husband who's kind of like that. He's, he has a, he's abusive Mm. and she was saying, and she seems like a nice person. And she was saying like, you know, my kids are asking questions and my kids are, you know, they're like 15, 20 years old. What should I say? And, and we explored it, and eventually I just I just told her, like, you just can't say anything. Like, I get why you would want to say, well, you know your dad did this, or and say, you know, your kids come to you and say, like, Mom, you know, I went to Dad's house, and da-da-da-da. And you, know, you can be there, and you can listen, but the key is, is you don't want to start dipping into your own material. Maybe that's the, maybe, it's like you can you can reflect and, and empathize yeah. and be, right. you know, be there for kids, but... What you don't want to do is be like, and let me tell you another thing, you know, because that's really something you need to be telling your therapist and your friends and your parents and your siblings, yeah. not something you want to dump on your kids. Because even though your kids might even be asking for that information, um, it, it usually has a has a deleterious effect. Does that make sense? It does. It sounds very, very tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do I say? Do I simply reflect my kids' confusion? Yeah, this is really confusing. Or, oh, wow. Yeah, that scared you. Or, oh, you're sad. You miss, you know, your other parent, whatever. You know, like, I I could imagine this being really, really tricky. Yeah. Not something I've, I've had much experience with. I've had any experience with. Really. Yeah. And I have found that if a kid is really interested, you've already kind of screwed them up to begin with because... They are probably preoccupied kids. I mean, they're not screwed up. I'm just exaggerating. But um, so secure kids will be curious, but they'll also be like, well, I don't want to get into it with my parents. Mm. And and I want a secure relationship with my parents, but I don't really want to know the details. I love my parents, and I hope they're working it out, but I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get in the middle of this or have to pick sides or... Right. So if you have a kid who's just like, I need to know, like the problem there is like, why do they need to know? Not that you should tell them. And uh, the other thing is like, oh, that's great. That's a process response over content response. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I'm really beating that into my students head this quarter because I'm teaching applied couple. Oh, yeah. And we're doing a lot of demonstrations in class. And it's, um, (laughs) you know, I love my students. but. They're not therapists yet. It is hard to learn. Yeah. It is hard. They, they're they not at internship yet. Yeah. You know, they've never seen a real client. Uh-uh. 
and they're still stuck in that old paradigm for, sure. them, for the most part yeah. of, of content over process. There's a reason people go to grad school. Yeah. There's something to learn. Yeah. <laughs> and the, it, it's, it's so predictable what, what people will do um, in terms of their, uh, as a beginning therapist, you know, the, the couple, the role-playing couple will be talking about how they're distant and they're conflicting a lot. And inevitably, the novice, you know, developing therapist, well, what do you think they go to as sort of a, just almost repeatedly in a content manner regarding the fact that the couple feels distant and they're having a lot of fights? Oh, it might be advice giving, or maybe it's like um, getting lost in the content of whatever it is that they were. That, yeah, for sure. Like, if they're fighting about... Uh, how clean the house is right right okay well so let's let's nego- let's negotiate negotiate how uh, how how clean the uh, house okay uh, yeah, yeah it just breaks your heart I'm no no it, i remember doing it yeah ah! well it just breaks it breaks my heart watching it too i'm just like god damn um <laughs> but the other part uh and then you also said what was the first part you said getting into um, uh did i say content no, did I say uh, advice giving? Advice giving. Like, what kind of advice do you think they give well, a couple? what do you guys think about hiring someone to clean the place, maybe, yeah. then? You know, yeah. like, uh, would that But what help? about general, like, uh, like distance and that kind of thing? Oh, hey, how about date night, guys? Yeah, date night. I'm so glad you're going here. Yeah. Yeah, date night. It's like, yeah, okay, great, Get date night. Yeah. Great. But that's, if they have fundamental issues of communication sure. and attachment, it's, it's, that's... It'll help maybe. You know what I think about that though? I think when when I've fallen into that, and I have, I've fallen in that, I think, oh, I'm punting. I'm overwhelmed here. I don't know what to do. And so I'm, and then I'm expecting that they're going to do their therapy on date night as opposed to they hired me. Right. This this ball's on my field. Right. You know, do I want to play? Right. And when we play and when you and I as couples therapists are in our zone, of good therapy, we are in the immediate moment helping yes, them to absolutely. become closer. Yeah. Um, it's a hard thing to do. Oh, hard. But once you well, get the gig, it's not that hard. Well, that's the thing. I mean, couple counseling is the hardest thing I ever learned. Yeah. It is, and it's still, I find it elusive at times, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, um, anyways, so yeah. 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 So it's been nice to see the students progress, and nice. they have. Uh, you know, we we just finished the first eight weeks of the quarter and they did uh we spent half of the class so we'd spend an hour and a half every week doing role plays in a fishbowl good for them that's great yeah and another cool thing is that uh two groups of two students two couples volunteered to role play a couple you know so the couple that we're treating are also students yeah and wait they're not a real couple they're a they're a Right. Yeah, they're, gotcha. They're gotcha. just, they didn't know each other. And are they going to be, are they the couple throughout the whole quarter? So yeah. you're treating the same couple? Yeah. So there's, oh, so fabulous. Yeah. So there's two couples retreating throughout the entire quarter. That's terrific. And they're writing their papers on that whole thing. And the couples, they just sort of raise their hand to be like, I'll do it. Sure. And the, the relationship that kind of develops. Yeah, I was thinking that. And you start. Uh-huh. seeing them uh-huh. as that couple. Uh-huh. And... You're going to fall in love. <laughs> yeah. And while I, so uh, while I'm on this topic, uh, so next week I'm going to spend some time 
de-rolling the people because oh. everyone has countertransference, not only as the therapist treating these couples, but also just observing these couples. You know, there are certain characters that are kind of abrasive and um, as a witness to right. them, you would start to develop some negative feelings. Right. Them. But it's a role. And I and I push them to you know I want you to be abrasive. Be a real couple. yeah. I want you to be like yeah. you're not you're not a healthy yeah. individual. You don't know? pitch us softballs and don't be shy. Right. Yeah. So, um, so next session we're going to spend or next class uh, we're going to spend some time like uh, having them talk about the role yes. and how it was hard for them and right because um, uh, and I'm going to tell my students this next week is. Right after graduation, when I was being an assistant teacher to yeah. Paul David, right. he asked me to uh, help out with his couple therapy class, and there were no men in the class. Oh, wow. And back then, in 1997, yeah. at least with Paul David, he was pretty focused on heterosexual relationships. Oh, right, sure. And so he's like, well, since there's no men in the class, but Kirk is an assistant teacher... Well, Kirk, you can play the hus- mm. you can play the husband, mm. and then another student played the wife. Uh-huh. Which, looking back, is hilarious because I also am faced with classes with predominantly women, and mm. we just we just have lesbian couples. Yeah, know, right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I uh, the students mainly knew me through this character; they didn't know me otherwise. And I was playing someone who had some some jagged edges, and I noticed that the students. Uh, saw me as that character, and it just mortified me to think yeah. like that they think that's me. Right, you're much more aloof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and right, uh, middle of you know, middle of the quarter, they they just turn in their papers, and uh, the and I'm getting this vibe from the students like like they all, none of them like me. Mm-hmm. You know, they all think like mm-hmm. I'm 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 all of their ex boyfriends that they hated. Mm-hmm. You know, and. They say to me, uh, so Paul announces his class. By the way, uh, so you just turn in your papers. Kirk is going to be correcting all of them because he's the assistant teacher. Awesome. What a moment. On a dime, all all the students suddenly start kissing my ass. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Hey, Kirk, how was your weekend? Oh, no. Hey, Kirk, uh, great to see you. I mean, it was marked. And, you know... For each individual woman, yeah. they uh, wouldn't have noticed themselves. Be- they might not even have been conscious of it. But when you have 16 people suddenly treating you the opposite uh-huh. after one thing happened, right? it just sort of put things in perspective. Now, I don't blame them. No, no, it's just natural. Right. But what it taught me very early on was the privilege that yeah. professors have, yeah. the power wields um uh what should i say like people either kiss your ass on purpose or they just naturally really like you you know because you know one way of dealing with authority is just be like well i like this person right (laughs) you know it's easier i have i have fond feelings towards this person and I realize that that feeling is a part of privilege. It's not a part of reality. Yeah. And good. that as a professor, you can start to be convinced of yourself that, oh. that I, I'm a likable, fun, my jokes are funny, and uh, I'm smart, yeah. and I'm usually right. 
and I have good things to say. It's very tempting as a professor, and I guess as a podcaster, to uh, fall in love with, with yourself in that way. Oh, yeah. Whenever yeah. I think about this, I, I think about um, Julius Caesar with uh, his, when you know they would do the triumph, the, the, the parade through Rome uh-huh. after a conquest in Gaul, and they'd dress him up. It was the one time they let someone wear purple because of that was a sign of royalty and they didn't like royalty back then in Rome and Roman society. They had, they thought of themselves as a, you know, Republic, Republic, right. And they would have a slave. So, and they'd dress up Julius Caesar. They'd paint his face like Saturn and they put like, they'd just make him look like a God, which is very much of a no, no in their society. And they would have, at least from my history understanding, a slave would be right next to Julius Caesar as he's on the chariot going through the town of the parade, and he'd be like, "You're a, you're a mortal. You are a mortal. You are oh, a, you're a human." A reminder. You're a human. Like just, I can't remember the phrase, but it's some yeah. sort of phrase that the the slave is supposed to tell over it. Just remind you, uh-huh. you're being treated like a god, uh-huh. but you're just a piece of shit like the rest you're of us. Just like everybody else. And. I, that's what that story is for me. It's just like, everyone's saying you're brilliant, but remember, you have power. Yep. And so there's a reason that they're edging in that direction. It doesn't mean you're a dumbass, but it means, you know, just remember, yeah. you're a human being. And right. when people have nice things to say about you, it doesn't it, it doesn't mean as much as you yeah. want it to as mean. As you want it to mean. Yeah, or is, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there, patrons, and please take care of yourself because... You deserve it.